Well, it has been such a joy for me to be here. Uh, my last time at the Generous Giving Conference was, I think, back in 2005. And I have so enjoyed uh, just being a part of this. I think the Lord enjoys this. I don't know that there's any subject that is dearer to his heart except for his son Jesus than the subject of generous giving. It's a thread that runs through the whole scripture from cover to cover. It's a subject that's at the heart of the gospel. You know, we're never more like Jesus than when we're being generous givers. And there's no greater way to demonstrate, live out the grace of God. And there's no greater means to experience joy than to participate with God as generous givers. And haven't you been inspired, moved, stirred, challenged by all the amazing stories we've heard this weekend about generous giving? I mean, just one after the other. Uh, and from different backgrounds and different ways of living that out. But what a joy that has been. And uh, as I've listened to those stories, I, th I just was sitting here thinking of a story my dad used to tell. Maybe you've heard it about the uh, chicken and the pig who were discussing what to have for breakfast. And the chicken said, well, why don't we have ham and eggs? And the pig said, I don't know about that. Because for you, that just requires a contribution. But for me, the pig said, that requires total commitment. And I think we've seen some total commitment, not just contribution mindset expressed here this weekend. And it's been such a joy. Uh, it's reminded me of a lot of stories that I have, have been a part of my life and part of my past. As Bob has mentioned, I am the daughter of gospel patrons. I love that term. Uh, thank you, John Reinhardt, for writing that book, for telling those stories. And Art and Nancy DeMoss were, my mom still is, uh, living but very much gospel patrons. And I grew up in an atmosphere of radical, lavish, joyful generosity. And I'm so thankful for the many ways that has touched my life and uh, it's been, by the way, really, really sweet for me to be here this weekend and meet and hear so many people who have stories of how they were brought to faith in Christ or were discipled in their faith through the ministry of Art and Nancy DeMoss. And uh, for Tony and Martha sitting down here and others that I've met in different ways, how your lives were touched, and so many of those intertwining stories. And uh, I hadn't heard that story from Bob Horner until tonight. What a joy to see how that legacy goes on and on and on. And hearing these stories, it's, it's brought to mind stories out of my own journey. You couldn't grow up in the DeMoss household and not have a heart for giving. It was just part of the air we breathed. And I can remember getting to the University of Southern California as a 17-year-old junior in college. I transferred there. I had an allowance of $50 a month. And I can't remember whether or not that included gas. I commuted to school, uh, but I know that I, it was the most I'd ever had per month. And I have gone back and found these meticulous records I kept all handwritten of every penny I would spend because the goal was how much I could have every month to give and out of that $50 how to spend as little of it as possible and give as much of it as possible and I don't take any credit for thinking that way at all it's just the way of life I had seen modeled in our household and then when I got to my first 
uh, job, my first ministry assignment out of college. I had this huge salary of $7,800 per year. And I would just thought, there's more to give. Of course, there were more expenses too. Uh, but I can, in those early days, just remember such joy. And, and I've asked the Lord to let me stand on the shoulders of my parents, so to speak, in every area of life, and I I would want for generosity to be one of those as well. I've had the joy in my ministry life of investing all the resources that come in through book royalties or speaking honorary to put it all back into the ministry and invest it in the Lord's work. And that has been not only a joy, but also a great freedom for me uh, to you know, just to have a clear heart, and I'm not saying everybody should operate that way, or that's more spiritual than somebody else. I'm just saying it has been a blessing for me to say, my heart is in this, not for what I get out of it, but for what I can give to serve the Lord and his people. But you've heard a lot of stories this weekend, and instead of telling you more stories, I want to take us to the Word. And that's where we see the the heart and the basis of true gospel generosity. Because generosity apart from Christ and the gospel can take you to hell. Generosity in and of itself is not a virtue, is not particularly noble. It can be a matter of self-righteousness, it can be a matter of pride, it can be a matter of keeping up with other people who do, but gospel-centered, Christ-centered generosity is part and parcel of living out the gospel. And I want us to see this progression uh, that you find through the scripture. We've seen it illustrated here numerous times over the last day or so. Uh, But this progression in the scripture, and then I'm going to illustrate it out of two passages. The first is we start with our infinite guilt. We are sinners. We deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. So we, all we have to offer him is guilt. And then God lavishes upon us his infinite grace, right? That's the gospel. Our guilt, his grace. And out of that equation comes flowing gratitude, heartfelt gratitude, gratitude upward, and then generosity outward. So we have guilt toward God. He pours his grace out on us. We lift up gratitude upward. We spread generosity outward. And that results in even more gratitude on the part of the people who've been touched by his grace, mediated through us to them. And the sum total of it all is that God gets massive glory. He is worthy. We just sang that. So it's our guilt His grace, we lift up gratitude, we spread generosity outward, more gratitude is lifted up to the Lord, and he gets more glory. Now, the heart of that and the essence of that progression is seen in two great chapters, passages of scripture, uh, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. We looked last night briefly at the one in the New, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but let me just give you a bird's eye view of it again. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Judd took us there last night, and I hope this is a passage. If you have a heart for generous giving, you need to camp out in this passage. These two chapters, there are none greater just a, a, a treatise on God's heart for giving. Uh, Paul the Apostle calls giving a grace 
in these two chapters. And he refers to grace seven times in these two chapters. And he talks about the example of the Macedonian believers who, on the one hand, had experienced severe affliction and severe poverty. But at the same time, they also had an abundance of joy and overflowing generosity. Now that is crazy math. That just doesn't make sense to accountant types, but it makes all the sense in the world in God's math. The the Macedonian believers, they gave according to their means, Paul says, but they also gave beyond their means. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that meant for them, but I know I would love to learn to live that kind of life. To give according to your means and then somehow by faith and sacrifice to give beyond our means. And as you read this passage, there was no coercion. There was no begging for funds. These believers, in fact, who had suffered so greatly, Paul says they begged earnestly for the opportunity to give to the suffering believers in Jerusalem. They were looking for opportunities to give out of their extreme poverty and affliction. It's amazing. And so then Paul exhorts the Corinthian believers to follow the example of the Macedonian believers and to excel in this grace of giving. Excel in the grace of giving. He talks to them about planned giving, about cheerful giving. He talks about being channels of blessing. God blesses us so not, not so that it can stop with us, but it says in uh, verse 11 of chapter 9, you have been enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Channels of blessing. He talks in these two chapters about the multiplying effect of giving. It's supernatural. You can't explain this. We give out of what he has blessed us with. And then he promises to multiply our seed for sowing and to multiply the harvest of our righteousness. I prayed that for a couple here today who are generous givers. And I've prayed this promise for myself many times over the years. God says, I will give you uh, bread for your own food. I'll meet your needs. But then I'll increase the, the seed that you have to sow. I said, Lord, would you give me more to give? And then I'll increase, God says, the harvest of your righteousness. So I say, Lord, take the seed, whatever it is you give me to give, and would you multiply the harvest of righteousness that results. And then more multiplication, because Paul talks about praise and thanksgiving being multiplied back to God. There's a multiplying effect of generous giving. And then we see in these two chapters that our giving is grounded in the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Here's an amazing Savior who divested himself entirely of his kingly glory became poor to make us rich. Well, that's a passage I hope you live in, spend a lot of time, and I go back there over and over and over again, and it always inspires me to a greater faith and sacrifice and discipline and all that's involved in generous giving. 
But I want to take us in the time we have remaining tonight to two chapters in the Old Testament. We're going to move through them quickly. If you have an iPhone, a digital device of some sort, and you'd like to pull it out, I think you'll get even more out of this if you can follow along, beginning in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles, and you may just want to pull that out and have it available because I'm going to read several verses from those two chapters. But let me set the stage here. King David has had this illustrious 40-year reign over Israel. And now he's, in, he's nearing the end of his life. And there's some unfinished business in David's heart. He's not satisfied just to have established and expanded the kingdom, but he has also longed to build a house for the Lord. But you remember that it wasn't God's plan for David to build this temple. That assignment was going to be given to David's son, Solomon, who would succeed him on the throne of Israel. Now, let me just pause here and remind us that we all have a God-appointed mission and calling for our lives. And that doesn't look the same for everyone. Acts 13 tells us that David served the purpose of God in his own generation. I've been thinking about that this week and wondering, will that be said of me? Someday. Not that I serve the purpose of my organization or our donors or my friends, my colleagues, but that I served the purpose of God in my generation. I'm so tempted, and maybe you are as well, to get distracted with tasks that are good tasks, but they're not the ones God has assigned to me. And I think it's a question we need to be recalibrating. I'm 55 now, and my dad dropped dead of a heart attack at age 53. So I'm just thinking about these things and asking the Lord, am I investing my life in doing the things, not just noble things, good things, great things, things on people's agendas, but on your agenda for what you've called me to? Well, in the first eight verses of 1 Chronicles 28, David assembles all the leaders of the people together in Jerusalem, and he tells them what his heart's desire is, this unfulfilled desire to build a temple, a house for the Lord. And then he tells them that God has chosen his son Solomon to complete, to carry out this great work. And then turn to verse 9, if you would, uh, or scroll to verse 9. And David turns to Solomon now, and he gives a solemn charge to his son who will succeed him. And he says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. What an amazing legacy to leave for the next generation. Here's an intentional passing of the baton of faith to his son. And David calls his son Solomon to orient his life around the God that David had known and loved and served all these years. And then he affirms God's calling in his son's life and uh, calls him to do the work of the Lord, to be devoted to the priorities of God's kingdom and to spend his life for God's sake. Well, in verses 11 to 19, David gives Solomon the blueprint, the details for the temple. That's, that's a whole paragraph itself. And David says, I received these plans in writing from the hand of God. 
Here are the details. So David had received this message from God about what the temple was to look like. And then in verse 20, he knows that this is going to be a monumental undertaking. So he speaks courage into his son's heart. And he promises that he will have two resources. Let's look at them. First in verse 20, he says, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. So what's the first resource Solomon is going to have? Well, it's the presence of God. And we're reminded that from start to finish, God's work is always dependent on his presence, his power, his enabling. Let me remind this room full of generous givers that the ministries you invest in need the presence and power of God more than they need your money or anybody else's money. And let me also remind you that you need his presence, and his power in your life more than you need money in order to do the things that God has called you to do. So David says, God, my God, who's going to be your God, will be with you from start to finish. What an amazing promise. But then there's more. Verse 21, he promises that uh, Solomon will have God's provision. And he talks about the, the labor, the human labor, the human resources needed to accomplish this great task of building a temple. And all of this anticipates in an old covenant sense the building of a new and living temple called the church. And the ultimate temple, the new Jerusalem, a promise that as we do God's work, we will have his presence, we will have his power, and we will have his provision. That's all background. Now we come to chapter 29. And in this chapter, keep scrolling to verse 1 there, we have a stunning display of grace-filled, generous giving that results in great heartfelt gratitude and glory being given to God. Verse 1, David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Remember as you serve the Lord in whatever capacity, whether it's on Wall Street or uh, on Skid Row or wherever it is that you're serving him, remember that the work to which he calls us is a great work. It's a great work. Uh, David says he's going to build a palace. This is a kingly residence, a kingly dwelling, a home for the king. And we're reminded again of the New Testament yet to come where God will build a temple among his people in which he can dwell. And David says we're doing this not for men, but for God. It's for him. It's a monument for his glory. And so he says in verse 22, I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. Wouldn't you love that to be able to be said of your life at the end of your life? For you to be able to say that? That's what I want to be able to say. When when I know that I'm coming to the end of my journey, I have done all I possibly could to provide for God's work to continue and advance and progress. 
And so David says, I've provided the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Now, all this stuff we don't know, but commentators, at least the one I read on this, uh, said that this may have been accumulated from the spoils of war. So, It's not too hard for a king to give from the national treasure store, right? But David wants to do more. He wants to give generously out of his own wealth. So he says, verse 3, Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen. Gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. What motivates this generous offering from David's heart, from his own personal assets? Why? He says, because of my devotion to the house of my God. 2 Corinthians 8, where we started... Paul says that our giving reflects and proves the sincerity of our love. It reflects the sincerity of our love. We cannot claim to be devoted to Christ and his kingdom if we are not investing generously in it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think the converse is equally true. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Our giving reveals what we really love. Our giving and our spending reveals what we really love. And just a little note here, you notice that David did not leave this wealth to his son. His son was going to be involved and have a vital role in managing it, but he left it for the advancing of God's kingdom. I'm doing this for God, he said. So now, having made his own contribution, David calls for others to give generously, which is essentially what this whole event is about, issuing a call to give generously. And David calls them, if you will, to become gospel patrons. I love that term. I'm going to be using that a lot in the days ahead. So he says in verse 5, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say who will bring money or gold or silver for this project. He says instead, who will give himself? Who will consecrate himself? Listen, you cannot be consecrated to Jesus and not be a generous giver. God does not need our stuff to do his work. He does not need our assets. He does not need our resources. He created the entire universe out of nothing. So he doesn't need our things. He doesn't need our money. What he wants and what he will use is us. And when he has us, he will have everything we own or manage for him, the owner, as well. 
So spurred by David's example, the leaders and the people of Israel follow suit with their own generous giving. It's a great passage. Look at verse six. Then the leaders of the father's houses made their freewill offerings, as also did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold. And the, it just keeps multiplying the giving. 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100 thousand talents of iron and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. It's the same thing you read about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. These passages are really linked to each other. When you read about the generous giving of the Macedonian believers that stirred the Corinthian believers to give. And then Paul says to the Corinthians, your zeal to give has stirred up the believers in Macedonia to give. There's mutual stirring up to generosity. It makes me wonder, who has been stirred to a greater level of generosity and sacrifice because of the example of my life? And if those who follow you and are influenced by you were to Give with the same level of generosity that you do. What would their giving look like? Your children, your grandchildren, your colleagues. Who is being stirred to radical, selfless, joyful, free-hearted, glad-hearted, open-handed generosity because of the example they see in us? Well, verse 29, then the people, I'm sorry, verse 9 of chapter 29, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. And you see what we've been hearing all weekend, that targeted, intentional, free will, generous giving brings great joy to the people of God. On verses 10 through 19, I won't read this whole passage, but David prays and he worships God, he exalts God for his great power and majesty and glory. Verse 12, he says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, gratitude going up. We thank you, O God, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I think we need to remind ourselves of this really often, and that is that it all belongs to God, that God is the owner. We are dependent on him for everything we have and need. He is the source of all wealth. It all belongs to him. He owns it all, and that gives us a whole greater freedom in generously sharing it and directing it as he directs us. Verse 17, he says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. You see a lot about the heart of giving in those verses. See, God wants us giving with a pure heart. 
That has to do with the motives. That has to do with the methods and the means. We see God wanting us to give freely and joyously. And we see that a lifestyle of generous giving inspires others to a lifestyle of generous giving. Verse 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart. It's a great thing to pray for your children and grandchildren. That he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. And again, we just see that in order to fulfill his calling in life, Solomon's greatest need was not material resources. He did need those, and God did provide those, but what he needed even more was a heart for God, a walk with God, more than he needed material resources. Remember that as you think about what you want to pass on to your children. Well, verses 20 through 22, the whole congregation blesses the Lord. They offer sacrifices. Verse 22, they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. You see the joy theme in these two chapters and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the joy that comes with great generosity that's a response to God's amazing grace. When I think of the joy of giving, my mind goes back to a man who was a friend of my dad's. His name was Dick James, and he was the inventor of the slinky toy. Uh, back, he was a young engineer who invented this in the early 1940s, and uh, this invention propelled, propelled Dick James to instant overnight fame and fortune. And all of a sudden, he had the resources to do whatever he wanted to do, and he, he did. He traveled the world and uh, tasted of everything he could, but he found this deep emptiness and longing and dissatisfaction in his heart. None of it satisfied him as he thought it would. And in that process, Dick James came to faith in Christ. My dad got to know uh, this man and shared his story often with us as we were growing up. This man, after his conversion, got, was totally sold out to the Lord. And he felt at one point that God was calling him to South America to be a missionary. He gave away everything he had. He had an uncle who died and left him a small inheritance, and he gave that away. And he didn't, he didn't want any bank account to lean on. He didn't want to raise support. And my dad would remind us, you know, God doesn't call everyone to live this way, but this is what Dick James did. He was just radical, and he, he wanted to fully trust God. But he did confess later on to having held out on God in one little point. He kept with him when he went to South America the original die for the slinky toy, thinking that if perchance God would let him down, he could start making slinky toys in Latin America and open up a whole new market. Well, then he told about the day when God spoke to his heart and he went to the Pacific Ocean and threw that die in the ocean and became a really free man. Now, there were some sad and tragic parts of this man's story. You may have read parts of it elsewhere. Don't believe everything you read. Uh, but this man had just this core heart to want to go hard after God. 
And in that process, he wrote a letter to my dad. I have actually the original of this, where he expressed the incredible joy that he experienced from being sold out to Christ. Let me read to you just a paragraph from that letter. He says, I praise the Lord that he has shown me both sides of having much of this world's goods and having nothing. He says, the more I am in this world, the more I can see that there is nothing, nothing, nothing. Families, money, factories, education, position, reputation, nothing amounts to a piece of dust outside of Christ. He is everything, all total. He is king. He is wonderful. He is love, life, peace, happiness, lovely, wonderful, to be praised. He is our all. He is the foundation. He is the rock. He is the only way. He is breath, bread, water. Praise God. Glory, glory. I want him and only him, 100%, nothing else. Hallelujah. I want to know him. I want to glory in him. I want to follow him. Glory to his name. My dad would sometimes say when he read that, he said, people might call that man a fanatic. And then he would say, I wish I was that kind of fanatic. Well, the effects of generous giving are enormous. It's it's multidimensional in its influence and its impact. It moves us upward and uh, Godward in acts of worship. It has an inward direction. We could do a whole weekend talking about the sanctifying influence of generous giving and how it loosens our grip on stuff and it uh, does away with self-absorption and how it brings us joy. It's got an inward effect. And then it has an outward effect. It blesses us others. It inspires others to give. And then there's a forward effect, the influence on the next generation. I loved hearing Pastor Jimmy talk this morning about how they're training their children in the grace of giving, to passing that forward and in shaping their values and planting seeds that will produce a future harvest in the lives of those you may never know. So what are you doing today in the area of living giving that will outlive you? What are you passing on to the next generation? And I don't mean just your children. I'm a single woman. I don't have my own biological children, but I'm influencing a next generation. And if, if they love what I love, what I really love, if the next generation loves what you really love, how much will they love the Lord our God? If they adopt the priorities that we have modeled, not just what we say our priorities are, but the ones we demonstrate, how earnest will they be about serving the Lord and others? Okay, I've got to talk for just a few minutes about Art Damas, my dad. And I spoke on this uh, when I was here in 05 at Generous Giving, and I understand somewhere in the archives they have this message, and hopefully they can, when they get back, maybe put that up on the website. If you want to hear more about this man, I shared a whole message on that. Let me just give you a few glimpses uh, about him. Nearly 35 years ago, on the weekend of my 21st birthday, I received a call that my dad had had a heart attack and was instantly with the Lord. I'd been with him that morning, actually, and then had flown back to Virginia where I was serving in a local church at the time. He was 53. My mother was just 40. There were seven children, ages 8 to 21 at the time. Uh, My dad met Christ in a radical, life-transforming encounter when he was in his mid-20s. He never got over the wonder of the fact that God would have saved him. 
Early in his marriage, he and my mom started a small insurance business at the kitchen table of their first apartment. And my dad pioneered the direct mail mass marketing uh, of health and life insurance. He was the first one. Is that my mic doing that? Sounds like it might be. Try that. Uh, they pioneered in, uh, in mass marketing of health and life insurance. He was the first one to sell insurance without agents. Some of you are old enough to remember Art Linkletter doing commercials for this insurance company, and uh, that's how his business was developed. The business prospered, and at the time of his death in 1979, it was worth somewhere around $250 million. But in the process of building that business, he was a man of one single solitary purpose. And that was to glorify God and advance God's kingdom here on earth. And that is all that really mattered to Artemis. And my mom was such a partner with him as well in that heart. That's what got him up in the morning. It's what kept him going through seasons of prosperity as well as seasons of great adversity. He was a man who lived in the light of eternity. You see, he knew that the National Liberty Corporation that he had founded would soon be forgotten. But he wanted to leave an eternal legacy. He wanted to take with him and send ahead before him to heaven true spiritual riches. So as a result, he wholeheartedly pursued God and sought to honor him and serve him. He loved God's word. He loved reaching people with the gospel. I was telling somebody today that he witnessed to everything that moved. And he had some interesting ways of doing that. But God just seemed to take him to ripe fruit. People who were ready and that the spirit had moved on their hearts to trust Christ. And then he had this incredible heart for giving. And in so many different ways, he was not flamboyant or flashy about this, but we lived in that home. We knew what drove him. We knew what motivated him. We sat there on Sundays at the dinner table reading missionary letters with a map of the world on the wall of our breakfast room uh, there with pictures of missionaries that we had supported in different ways and, and their strings tied from their picture to the country where they served and reading their letters and uh, just grew up in this atmosphere of loving to give. Because grace flows out in generosity, right? I had a gentleman tell me here last night about how he came to know the Lord, and he says, and when I got God's grace, it just started coming out in generosity. That's what it does. Stingy believers, I mean, is that something that should not make any sense at all? How can we be such recipients of God's amazing grace and then hold on to anything when it's including the breath we breathe, we breathe, it's all a free gift from God. So he lived with this open heart and open hands, eager to give. Well, within a year of his death, the business that he had worked so hard to build had been sold. And we had no contact or involvement with that anymore. I have no idea what's happened to it today. But I do know about the investment that he made in countless ministries in the lives of thousands of believers, a handful of whom are here tonight, and how that investment has continued, it has moved on, and not least of which is the investment he made in the lives of his children, of spiritual riches, a heart for God and for ministry. Uh, I can still remember him just often exhorting us about the potential pitfalls of prosperity. 
And because of that, he did not believe that parents should leave a massive financial inheritance to their children. He believed they should leave a huge, as big as possible, of a spiritual inheritance, and he was very intentional about trying to do that. But he made it clear that he did not plan to leave tons of money to his children. He had seen how doing that had caused just such wreckage in the lives of second and third generations recipients, generation recipients of wealth. And so when he died, his will provided, and we knew this was going to be the case, that the vast majority of all his assets and holdings were put into a foundation that he had started many years before his death. I'm so thankful for the substantial resources that have been released to the Lord's work. He, 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 let me say this. He, I'm sure this wasn't original with him, but he would say, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Uh, he very, but he didn't know that at 53, in the height of his business, that the Lord would take him. So he had all, he'd given generously in his lifetime, but he'd also made plans that if the Lord took him sooner than uh, in what would, we would call an untimely way, that uh, that giving would continue. And I'm just thankful for the many, many thousands of people around the world who have come to know Jesus as a result of his generosity. I'm also thankful, by the way, let me just say this as a next generation, um, a daughter, I'm thankful that those funds have not been in my pockets. And uh, I'm thankful for the temptations, the choices, the potential dangers that I have been spared as a result of his wise planning and stewardship. And most of all, I'm so thankful for the incredible legacy that he left me of a heart for God, a passion for his kingdom, a desire to be a generous liver and giver, and to pour out my time, my resources, and my life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. I have in my possession a copy of a note that my dad wrote that was dated April the 4th, 1977. And at the top he wrote, what are my lifetime goals? He listed five, and the first was a certain amount of money that he wanted to be able to give away. It's a figure that would make probably just about anyone in this room gasp. And uh, in God's providence, and as the result of wise stewardship and planning, he has been able within the lifetime of his children to give in excess of that amount. And uh, so that was his first lifetime goal. Then he wrote on that same piece of paper, what are my goals for the next three years? And if I knew I were to die in six months. And both of those centered around his goal to extricate himself from his business so that he would have more time to devote to the Lord's work. What he didn't know when he wrote this little note was that he didn't have three years left here on earth to fulfill those goals. He was 51 when he made those notes, and at the age of 53, he went to be with the Lord. And what a rich legacy he has left in so many ways. What kind of legacy are you leaving your children? Your children have a passion for business, for sports, for politics, for making money, finer things of life, success as the world measures it? Or do they have a passion for Jesus and his kingdom? Now, you can't make that happen. You can pray. You can uh, create a climate that is conducive to their wanting to choose Christ. But 35 years after you're buried, as I stand here today reflecting on the legacy left by Art Damas, what will be your children's 
your grandchildren's recollection of you? Will it be a dad and mom on their knees? That's the indelible image I have of Art DeMoss starting every day on his knees, in the word, in prayer. It was the number one priority of his life. Will they think of parents who were passionate about bringing people to Jesus? Will they think about parents who lived generously for the sake of Christ and the gospel? I'm so moved by what uh, was shared earlier tonight and the fact that we're here today because five generations ago, a 20-year-old Thomas McClellan consecrated himself to the Lord. And you just wonder, five generations from now, what might it be that God would be doing in this world as a result of your life and your heart for his kingdom? I want to share just a closing quote with you here. If I can find the right page. Some of you remember the name Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. And he said, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. A branch bears the same kind of fruit as the tree. An old divine says, well, what would have become of us if Christ had been as saving of his blood as some men are of their money? He says, oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, Give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. He said, it's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Would you bow with me in prayer for just a moment? Could you just pinpoint something that the Lord has spoken to you about tonight? And just say, yes, Lord, to whatever it is. And then I think it would be fitting if I could just lead us in that portion of Thomas McClellan's prayer that was shared earlier. I'm going to just read that same sentence and encourage you if it expresses the desire of your heart to express that to the Lord as I read it. And I join, and Lord, we do join our hearts in saying, I consecrate all that I am and all that I have, the faculties of my mind, the members of my body, my worldly possessions, my time, and my influence over others, all to be used entirely for your glory and resolutely employed in obedience to your commands as long as you continue to have me in life. And, O Lord, may it be true, may it be so, for your glory, for the fame of your name, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ may be known and loved throughout the world. We pray it in Jesus' great name with thanksgiving. Amen.